Merry Christmas, everybody. I'm really glad that uh, you made the choice to be with us and join with us in this uh, celebration of, of Christmas. Uh, as that story indicated, I want to talk a little bit about what the prophets say about Jesus. We are in a series that um, we're entitling BC because we're looking at uh, Christmas before Christ and all the things that went into laying the groundwork for this and how it can alter, change, deepen our, our understanding of uh, what Christmas is, is all about. And so several weeks ago, we talked about the master plan, uh, where the incarnation was part of the plan for creation from the start. Uh, but it became a rescue mission once humans rebelled against God and put ourselves into captivity to Satan and his power. And then uh, this last week, we looked at the genealogy of Jesus and showed how there's some pretty shady characters in his uh, birth line, and uh, that's on purpose. Uh, it, it, it says something to us. So now I want to look at, at the, some, some prophecies. Uh, I don't know if you know it or not, but as was said in this book, there are uh, some, some prophecies given by ancient prophets hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus is ever born. And they, they tell us aspects of the birth and life and the death and resurrection of uh, the Savior of the world. Um, and, and it doesn't imply that everything about the future is set in stone. It just implies that whatever God wants to set in stone, he can. And he does that and then tells people about it because for people who are born before Christ, he wants to give them hope of the coming Savior. And for those of us who live after Christ, he wants to give us a number of considerations to let us know that this thing is not made up. This is for real because it was foretold from hundreds of years earlier. It's all part of God's plan. Now, I've read some Christian apologists who kind of go overboard on this, and they claim that there are hundreds and hundreds of, of these meticulous prophecies that are given that, that Jesus fulfills. And they do that because the gospel, the gospel authors often say that this happened to fulfill that which was written. And they do that probably a hundred times. But if you look at the verses that Jesus fulfilled, you'll find that more often than not, they don't predict anything. And when, when uh, these authors say that Jesus fulfilled something, this is common in the ancient Jewish world, they're, they're not saying that he did something that was predicted or that had to take place. They're simply saying this event fills out the meaning of that. Uh, it, it illustrates what that verse is about. And most of the time, that's what's meant when the gospel authors say Jesus fulfilled something. But there are exceptions. There are genuine predictions in the Old Testament that come to pass. Uh, and it, it uh, tells us a lot about the birth of Jesus. Here's some of the ones that I think are most significant, just a few. Uh, in Genesis 3, uh, this is really interesting because it comes right after the rebellion of Adam and Eve, and as judgment is being pronounced on them, right in the midst of it, and this is typical of God, he gives this word of hope. Judgment never has the last word. There's always hope sprinkled into it. And so he here says that a descendant of Eve, meaning a human being, is going to bruise the head of the serpent, the serpent that had just seduced them and brought them into this captivity. And so the first prophecy in the Bible, and this is it, is about how evil will be brought to an end by a, a human who will be born a descendant of Eve. And then in Micah, we find out where this descendant would be born, as the book said, and as we just sang about a little bit ago. It says, God's anointed ruler would be born in Bethlehem, a real tiny, tiny town. Not a big metropolis or anything like that. A very insignificant little town. But that's, of all the towns in the world, all the cities in the world, that's where the anointed one would be born. And then in Zechariah 12, this is Yahweh himself speaking. And Yahweh says, 
that there'll come a time when my people will mourn as they look upon me whom they have pierced. Now, to be pierced, it's a metaphor for, for being killed, slain in some way. And for that to happen, Yahweh has to become a human. And so here we find in this passage really a prophecy about the incarnation, that the one who's born would be a descendant of Eve, and yet would also be the Lord himself. And the end result of it is that he would be pierced, which is referring to the crucifixion. And then Isaiah 53, we read a lot about the coming Savior. Uh, It tells us that he would be a suffering servant, who would be despised and rejected, which you wouldn't expect I mean, you would think when the Savior comes, he'd be welcomed and celebrated and all that. But here we have the surprising prophecy that he's going to be despised and rejected. He'd be afflicted to the point that people wouldn't want to look at him. He'd be beaten so bad, it'd be revolting to look upon him. And that, we know from the Gospels, is exactly what happened to to Christ. Uh, He'd reconcile us to God by bearing our sin and our suffering. He would be put on trial. And think about it. This is written 800 years before the time of Christ. Why would anyone think that the Messiah is going to be put on trial? But here we have the statement that he would he'd be quiet. He'd remain silent while he's put on trial. Most interesting of all, the prophet says that he would die with the wicked, but make his grave with the wealthy. That's very odd. Uh, what are the odds of getting that right by coincidence? Jesus was crucified with three criminals. And he would have been thrown into a mass grave, which is what usually happened to crucified criminals. But Joseph of Arimathea was a sympathizer to what he was about. And he was a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin, so he offered up a tomb for Jesus to be born in. And so he died with the wicked and was buried among the uh, wealthy. Um, and, and, And these things are told to folks ahead of time so that they'll have hope. But they're also told so that we who come after Christ can look at this and go, Wow. Uh, that uh, it, it, these and other considerations let us know that this story that we're celebrating here this morning, or this evening, isn't a nice, cute, fairy tale, once upon a time, mythological kind of a thing. There are people who think that I know, but you see, this, things like this tell us that this stuff is true. This story is real. Jesus really was born in Bethlehem. Uh, he really did do the things that, that were foretold among him. He really is the Savior of the world. He really is the Son of God. He really is the Word made flesh. He really is both human and God. He really is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He really is uh, the the Mighty Counselor, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, which is another prophecy that's given of him, Isaiah 9, 6. His name shall be called, when all this is said and done, the Mighty Counselor, uh, or the the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, uh, the Prince of Peace. He really is that. This isn't something that someone conjured up. Uh, humans wouldn't conjure up a story like this. This isn't the way we usually think about God or think about kings. It's the most unusual story, but there it is. And so if you are here tonight and are listening through some other means later on, and you're not fully convinced that this is in fact true, uh, I encourage you to think about that. What are the odds of prophets getting this accidentally right? Uh, think about that. Uh, and... If you get to the point that you're convinced, at least to the point, I mean, certainty is hard to come by, you know, for anybody, but, but if you're convinced to the point of saying, this is the most reasonable way to live, this seems like it is true, at least to the point where I, I'm willing to lay my life down on this, I'm willing to live my life this way, then it's just a matter of you surrendering the control over your life over to him. And then you'll find out that, in fact, he is real. You start cultivating a relationship with him. 
And that's what it is to call Jesus Christ Lord. It just means I'm not going to be calling the, the shots in my life anymore. I'm going to surrender my control over to him. I'm going to live life his way, uh, doing his will. And then you cultivate a relationship with him. And you'll find that as you walk with him, uh, this goes from being just a probable theory to a reality that you live in. And uh, something that fills the need and the hunger of your soul and gives your life incredible significance and a hope everlasting. Amen? Amen. So that's one reason why we're given these, the, these prophecies. Very interesting stuff. But it's not only to convince us that this is true. These prophecies tell us a lot about the meaning of Jesus' coming. In Genesis 3, we saw that the, the main thing there that the Messiah will do is he'll bruise the head of the serpent. Uh, he'll defeat Satan. And so we find that there's, there's an enemy to be de- defeated when the Messiah comes. And then in Isaiah 9.6, he tells us that the end result of this is that we will see that he is, and his name will be, we'll call him the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. As a result of a battle with an arch enemy, Satan, there would be peace in this world because it would be ruled by the Prince of Peace. But here's the thing. When we think about a war to bring about peace... We invariably think about an army or a nation or a tribe going against another army or nation or tribe, and they use whatever means available to try to squish them. And so we think about a war that is filled with violence, and they use guns and the tanks and drones and bombs and missiles and clubs and whatever else they've got uh, in order to beat the, uh, the opposition into submission. And once they're beating into submission, we say, okay, now we have peace. We won. And so it could be, if you're thinking the way battles are normally fought, it could be that you think, well, if God shows up here, and if his goal is to defeat Satan, and if his goal is to bring peace on earth by means of defeating Satan, well, then he's going to probably come with all this power and might and all of his archangels and a mighty sword in his hand, and he's going to slay all the evildoers, and that's how he's going to bring peace on this earth. Because human beings have believed since time immemorial that if we just killed enough of the bad guys, well, then we'd be living in wonderland and peace. And it never quite works out that way. Well, that's a lot of people's conception of God. They think that that's how God's going to come in the end, even if he didn't come that way the first time. But see, here's the thing. That way of trying to arrive at peace has never worked and will never work because it can't work. The warfare way, the brutal power way of trying to arrive at peace at most can bring a temporary ceasefire and we call that peace but it's temporary because when you slay your enemy you just recruited their children and their children's children and all their friends to just pick up where they left off as soon as they get a chance so a peace that is won by warfare is a peace that's forever threatened by warfare that's why every 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 empire without exception This is an absolute uniform principle. Every empire that's ever come into power by means of the sword has ultimately been dethroned by means of the sword. That's why history is an unbroken record of cyclical violence. It goes round and round and round and round. And every time people say, well, this time we'll, 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 the war to end all wars, we'll slaughter them utterly and then there'll be peace. No more of this. But it goes round and round sooner or later. And this is exactly what Jesus taught when he said, if you live by the sword you will eventually die by the sword. It just cannot arrive at peace, never has, never will. Another thing is this. Peace, real peace, is a whole lot more than a ceasefire. Um, Peace, according to the Bible, is not just the absence of conflict. 
the biblical concept of peace is shalom. And shalom, it's not just an absence of something, it's a positive something. It, it, it entails wholeness. It entails harmony. It, inter- it entails right relatedness among God and people and all the creation. That's the word righteous. Righteousness means rightly related. So it's about righteousness and justice. All of that is entailed. There's peace because everything is working as it's supposed to work. That's not just the absence of conflict. This is the life of God here on earth. And what Jesus came was to bring not just the absence of conflict, but to bring real peace, to bring shalom, the life of God here on earth. And that is something that can never be achieved by means of the sword. It can never be achieved through violence. Whatever is achieved through violence is always threatened by violence, and therefore, by definition, it's not going to be the shalom, the wholeness, the harmony of, of, of God here on earth. The final thing I'll say about it is this. If, if God's way of, of defeating evil and establishing peace here on earth was to slay all the bad guys, well, folks, we'd all be dead by now. Now, the truth is, we're, we're, we're the bad guys. Um, now, we, we, we think we're good guys, because we always can find somebody who's worse. <laughs> and so it's like, oh, I'm not that bad. I'm pretty good, actually, compared to, you know, those guys. But see, it's not our comparison with those guys that we need to be worried about. It's a comparison with what we ought to be, what we're supposed to be, what God created us to be, which looks like Jesus. And I, for one, if I compare myself, if I measure myself by that standard, I ain't doing all that great. And I think all of us know on the inside that, well, we may be better than that person or that person, but it's none of our business to be thinking those thoughts. But, but while that may be true, we all know that we fall short of even the standard in our own heart, which itself is jaded, but we still fall short of that. <laughs> what if we saw the real standard? Folks, if God was coming to solve problems by slaying people, we'd all be slain. Fortunately, and we should all give thanks for this, that's not how God defeats evil and establishes peace on earth. He has a very different way of doing it. And see, this is the radical difference of the Christmas story. One of the things we've got to fight against is we hear this story every year, uh, and, and so we get used to it. It feels normal to us. It looks cute to us. But if we can hear it as though we're hearing it for the first time, it is an odd, bizarre, crazy, but beautiful story. Because nothing happens the way it's supposed to happen. And this taps in to the fact that the way God defeats evil and establishes his reign here on earth, it's not at all the way that the world does it, the way worldly captains and, and, and princes and kings do it. See, when God decides to defeat evil and establish peace on earth, he doesn't do it by coming as a mighty king with a mighty sword and a mighty army to squish people. He does it by making himself, transforming himself into a little tiny baby. A baby who ultimately will die at the hands of enemies out of love for those very enemies. That isn't the way the world usually defeats evil. When God decides to defeat evil and bring peace into this world, uh, he does it by loving his enemies, that's us, the bad guys, to the point of becoming one of us. And when God decides to defeat evil and establish peace, he doesn't, he doesn't do it by puffing himself and making himself big. He doesn't need to do that. He's already that. No, he does it by making himself small and vulnerable and weak and dependent. A little baby needing his parents to feed him and, and keep him warm and, and, and shelter him. When the Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, decides to defeat evil, he doesn't do it by becoming a human at the center of worldly power. You know, it's all located so he can use that worldly power to squish the worldly opponents. No, he is born to a family of peasant Jews in Galilee that um, has no power whatsoever. 
And when this king is born, this Prince of Peace king is born, he doesn't do it the way the world's kings are born. He doesn't do it by being born into a mansion, a palace. No, he's born in a barn, common barn. And whereas worldly babies that are going to inherit the throne are surrounded by dignitaries, nobility, and all of that, this little baby, this king of kings, when he's born in this world, he's surrounded by farm animals. And some shepherds who are kind of the lowlifes of the world. Uh, no dignitaries there at all. No, some astrologers come a couple of years later on, but that's nothing to, nothing to brag about either. And, and whereas uh, little babies who are born are going to inherit the throne, they're wrapped up in, in, in fine, silky linen, you know, and they got all the comforts. This baby, when God comes into the world and is going to defeat evil and establish peace, he's wrapped in swaddling clothes, which just means he's wrapped in rags. Instead of laying in a plush bed, he's put in a feeding trough. This is a very strange God who's going to defeat evil in a very strange way. Establish peace in a very strange way. And uh, whereas earthly kings are born into a royal bloodline, that's how they're kings, right? They're born in the right place. They inherit it because that's their bloodline. So they have a royal bloodline. This king, when he comes into the world, as I showed this last week, he comes into a bloodline that includes prostitutes and, and, and scandals and scoundrels and murderers and adulterers and a lot of other shady stuff. And does that on purpose. Instead of coming into a family that has a royal reputation, he comes in a family on purpose where the mother is all of her life going to be uh, looked at as a loose woman because she got pregnant out of wedlock, which is a big deal in the first century. And he is going to live his whole life being looked at as an illegitimate child. This is a very strange king who defeats evil in a strange but beautiful way and brings about peace in a strange and beautiful way. And he does it because he is the prince of peace, as the prophecy says. He's the prince of peace. He owns peace. He is peace. And so he doesn't just do peace. No, that's who he is. And so he doesn't ever set that aside to do something else like pick up a sword. He, he achieves peace and wins peace for this world by peaceful means because the only way to arrive at shalom is through shalom means. You do it through violent means and at most you'll get is a temporary ceasefire. If you want lasting shalom that goes on forever, you want to change this world, it's got to be done through shalom means and that's what Jesus illustrates all of his life. Everything about him from his birth on shows us what shalom looks like in this fallen world. And it looks like serving others and sacrificing for others and being put off for others. And so, just by virtue of the fact that he became incarnate, God's pouring himself out. Jesus didn't grab onto the treasure chest of divine prerogatives that he had, the bliss of heaven. No, he set it aside. Why? Because we needed him to. And he dove down and become this little baby to these Jewish peasants because we needed him to. He who was rich made himself poor for our sakes. That's what shalom, bringing about shalom in a fallen world looks like. And then all of Jesus' life, he's reaching out to the outsider. He's loving the people that no one else loves. He's feeding the hungry. He's, he's helping the poor. Uh, you know, the, the people who are oppressed by the system, those are the ones he gravitates towards. Um, uh, he, he, those who are sick and have infirmities, he brings healing. Those who are spiritually oppressed, he, he brings deliverance. He lives to serve those who are in need and to save sinners. And then ultimately, finally, the most incredible expression of achieving shalom and defeating evil in this world is when he gives his life for a race of humans who could not deserve it less. He goes to the cross and bears their sin and their sorrow. The way he brings peace is the way Isaiah prophesied. He's the suffering servant, the one who bears our sin and suffering, the one who is beaten to the point of being beyond recognition. He's the Prince of Peace, and everything he does manifests that peace, and that's how he brings that peace about, ultimately through the cross. Now, here's the thing evil was, the devil was defeated in principle, and that peace was established here on earth in principle. When Jesus 
gave his life on the cross. It, it worked. But we let yet live in a world that doesn't acknowledge that a whole lot. Uh, and God never forces truth on anybody. And so we yet live in a world where most people don't live under the reign of the Prince of Peace. They haven't surrendered control over their life to the one who knows the ways of peace. And therefore, they don't walk in the ways of peace. Uh, and, and most of them acknowledge the truth that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the Prince of Peace uh, and, and the, the Mighty Counselor and the Everlasting Father. Or if they acknowledge it, it, it doesn't have any impact in their life. And so the world goes on as though it wasn't true. We live in a world that, for the most part, doesn't. We, everyone sings about it, but no one lives as though that was actually true. What, what if this actually turned out to be real? Uh, what if this is the way to uh, bring about peace on earth? And so we sing about, let there be peace on earth, but we keep on relying on the old, tired, violent ways of trying to get there, and it will never work. The broken record goes on and on and on and on. What God calls his people to be, and his people are all who have submitted their life to the Prince of Peace and are committed to living the ways of the Prince of Peace, what God calls us to do is to show a world that is in darkness what light looks like. Show a world that is still in hatred what love looks like. Show a world that's still conflicted what peace looks like. Show a world that's still alienated from God what reconciliation looks like. Show a world that still is, 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 is in bondage to greed what outrageous generosity looks like. Show a world that is, is just steeped in injustice what justice looks like, what right-relatedness looks like. Show a world that's so full of uh, all these distinctions and hierarchies that to rank people and divide people and put people over others. Show what it's like, it looks like to be free of all that. Show a world that is in bondage to the fear of death what it looks like to not fear death because we know that this thing lasts forever. Uh, put on display to a world that doesn't yet acknowledge the reality of the Prince of Peace, the reality of the Prince of Peace, that's what we are called to be. His advertisements, his billboards. And it's by that means, the promise is that by that means, we will be inching the world closer to the time when he will return and establish his kingdom forever and ever and ever. And then, folks, there will be shalom, unbroken shalom, forever and ever. Meantime, our call is to live like this. And so, and this is why Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. This is the condition for being called a child of God. You manifest that shalom. That's why Jesus said, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, bless those who persecute you, do good to those who despitefully use you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. This is the way God does it, so this is the way we are to do it. And on an everyday level, it looks something like this. When someone is, speaks hostile words to you, can you, in submission to the Prince of Peace, not retaliate, um, but rather bless them? If they have a hostile attitude towards you, can you respond with an attitude of kindness? If there's aggressive behavior to you, can you respond with, a, uh, a, with serving behavior, submitted behavior? And can we commit to loving our enemies even to the point of dying? Because that's what Jesus did and he said, follow his example. It's radical. It can be costly. It requires us to die to that self-centered self. But that's being set free. And then you begin to experience the shalom of God in your life. And then you can become a conduit of shalom in this world that desperately needs it. That is what this thing is all about. That's what Christmas is all about. A crazy upside-down king with a crazy upside-down kingdom waging war the opposite the way the world does. But it's the only way that works. And this is what we're called to be. It's what the Christmas story is all about. Don't pick up the sword. Pick up the cross. Because Jesus was a carrier of the cross. Now we're going to... I'd like to ask the worship team to come up here and we're going to end with one more uh, song. It's Silent Night. And so here's the thing. In the ancient world, when a uh, baby king was born... 
There's a lot of noise. A lot of hooting and hollering. There's parades. People screaming. Horns were blowing. Guns were, were firing. Swords were clanking. Politicians were pontificating. There's just a lot of noise everywhere. Um, when Jesus was born, yeah, the, the three shepherds get a little bit of a song and dance, but that's about it. Uh, back in the manger, it's quiet. It's silent. No fanfare, no pomp and circumstances, no hooting and hollering, nothing. And that really is quite symbolic, isn't it? That when the real king, the king of kings and lord of lords comes into this world, it doesn't look anything at all like or sound at all like uh, the kings of this world. Um, and so the silence is sort of symptomatic or symbolic of the peace, the serenity, the quiet, the absence of conflict. And so can we stand here and let's sing in closing this beautiful song, Silent Night, Holy Night, and let's sing it as a prayer and a declaration of the reality for which Jesus came, who he truly is. Amen. Amen.